Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. You're listening to The Happiness Formula. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. And unfortunately, we're getting close to the end of our journey together. I know I'm sad too. But let's do a vibe check. How are you feeling? Happier? More engaged at work? I know. Too soon. Last time, we learned that most of us just aren't that engaged with our work. If you just Google the phrase quiet quitting, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Today, Barry will tell you why that is. And Adam Smith has some explaining to do. Here's Barry. We saw that the assumptions that began with Adam Smith about why people work and therefore what the workplace should look like have guided the development of industrial capitalism for two centuries. And the key assumption underlying this is that people work for a paycheck, nothing more, so that your only criterion in organizing work should be efficiency. Whether they, people like the work is irrelevant because people don't like any work. We know, I know, and I hope you know, that this view about human beings and their attitude toward work is false. There are lots of non-financial, non-monetary reasons that people give for doing their work. Satisfied workers are engaged by their work, not all the time, of course, but often enough so that engagement is salient to them. Satisfied workers are challenged by their work. It forces them to stretch themselves 
to at least occasionally go outside their comfort zones. Satisfied workers do their work because they feel that they are in charge. Their workday offers them a measure of autonomy and discretion. They want that autonomy and discretion for its own sake, and they also want it because it's a sign of trust and respect on the part of the people who oversee them. And they use this autonomy and discretion to achieve a level of mastery or expertise. They want to achieve. They want to learn new things. They want to develop as workers and as people. Satisfied people do their work because of the opportunities it provides for social engagement. They do many of their tasks as part of teams. And even when they're working alone, there are plenty of opportunities for social interaction during work's quiet moments. And finally, and I think most importantly, satisfied people like their work are satisfied with their work because they find what they do meaningful. Potentially, their work makes a difference to the world. It makes other people's lives better. And it may even make other people's lives better in ways that are significant. So these are all reasons people have for doing the work that they do that have nothing to do with money. Now, there are few occupations that have all of these features, and I don't think there are any occupations that have all of these features all the time. Sometimes it's drudgery, sometimes it's too stressful, Sometimes it's not really obvious how what you're doing is going to make the world better. So there are down moments in anybody's work, but at least we can imagine jobs where, on the whole, often engagement, challenge, autonomy, and meaning are a part of one's work life. And I've given you several examples of work like this. The carpet manufacturer who decided that he was going to reduce the company's environmental footprint to zero, which led to unbelievably highly motivated creative participation from the workforce because they were no longer just making carpet, they were also saving the earth. The takeover of the GM plant by Toyota, which with the same workforce, more than doubled the productivity of the output. The phone solicitors looking for contributions to scholarship funds who were motivated by the speech of a recent graduate who, uh, whose opportunity to have a life-changing experience at this institution was only made possible by the fundraising of people like the ones who were trying to get alums to contribute. These are all cases where people, when you remind people or tell people of the meaning and purpose of what they do, you motivate them and they both do better work and get much more satisfaction out of it. And so the puzzle, the puzzle that I will now try to answer for you is in the face of all of this evidence that Making work 
engaging, meaningful, and challenging produces better work, more profitable work. Why is it that 90% of the people that Gallup polls every year are dissatisfied with their work? Only 13% of people say they feel engaged by their jobs. Everyone else work is a source of frustration, not of fulfillment. And why is that? I have been interested in this why question essentially for my entire career. When I started out in psychology, I was, uh, I worked in the field made famous by a psychologist named B.F. Skinner, famous for basically training rats and pigeons to do things for food. And Skinner's view is that incentives were the whole story when it came to understanding behavior. If you did something and you got a payoff, a reward, you would do it again. If you did something and you got nothing, you would stop doing it. If you did something and got a punishment, you would stop doing it even faster. And understanding the way in which rewards, incentives, affected behavior was essentially the way to understand all behavior. From Skinner's point of view, anything we ever did, we did to get the reward. We did to get the carrot that was dangling in front of us. So I studied this stuff and I taught this stuff. And all the while that I was doing it, it struck me that this couldn't be right. The reason it struck me, or at least it couldn't be complete, And the reason I thought it couldn't be complete is that it didn't seem to describe the behavior of almost all the people I knew. I had lots of colleagues teaching uh, in various disciplines uh, at the place where I taught. I observed my own behavior, and it didn't seem to me that any of what any of us were doing was governed by the carrot that was dangling uh, in front of our noses. We didn't do it for the paycheck, although, of course, if we weren't paid, we wouldn't do it since we had to live our lives and pay our bills. But we were really motivated by other things. We were motivated by curiosity, by the opportunity to turn on young young adults to fields that we loved. Uh, And the paycheck was was necessary, but incidental. And yet here was Skinner saying that it was incentives like this that ran the world. So I thought, this can't be right. And yet, as I started reading about economics and about the way in which work is organized, I came to see that what Skinner was describing was the way of the world and the way of life for most people who work in industrial settings. And so even if Skinner was wrong, what he was doing was describing the world as it was, even if it wasn't the world as it had to be. And, uh, and so I've always been interested in the why question. Uh, and I started looking at workplace organization to look for evidence of uh, reasons for work that have little or nothing to do with the paycheck. One um, example I encountered is uh, 
the case of a guy named Danny Meyer, who is a restaurant entrepreneur. He has several high-end, expensive restaurants in the New York area, and he has now expanded to locations around the country uh, for people who are not familiar with New York restaurants. He's probably best known for as the creator of places called Shake Shacks, which are sort of fast food hamburger places that try to show you it is possible to deliver fast food and not have it taste like McDonald's cardboard. Um, and Danny Meyer wrote a book uh, about what he calls enlightened hospitality. He's been phenomenally successful. Why? Well, the food is great, to be sure, but the service is also great. And the question is, how did he do it? And how was he able to maintain it as his, the organization he oversaw got bigger and bigger? He says, quote, hold people accountable to high standards while letting them hold on to their own dignity. In other words, make it clear that you expect people to deliver the best they're capable of delivering, but don't humiliate and intimidate them into doing it. He says technical excellence is less than half the job and emotional skill is more than half the job. And this should remind you of a point I made about what Jeffrey Pfeffer said. You should hire people on the basis of attributes you don't know how to train and then teach them the things you do know how to train. And what Danny Meyer says is we can and do train for all the technical skills. Training for the emotional skills is next to impossible. What are the emotional skills? Warmth, intelligence, curiosity, work ethic, which I guess may be an echo of grit, something we talked about earlier in this course. Empathy, being able to feel, put yourself in the perspective of the customers you're serving and feel what they are feeling. Integrity, self-awareness, these are the emotional skills that he thinks produces excellence in the staff at his various restaurants and gives people who come to those restaurants the sense that they are being extremely well cared for, the sense that for at least this hour and a half, they are the most important people in the world. He talks about the idea of servant leadership, of giving people a chance to learn and grow. Employees first, customers second, profits third. How many companies do you think operate according to those priorities? Employees first, customers second, profits third. So it's a long-term view of success. If you do it right, the profits will come. If you pursue profits, you will effectively uh, be engaged in self-destruction. And it's just a question of how long you can fool how many people before it all falls apart. Key traits in managers, he says, honor, 
discipline, consistency, courage, wisdom, compassion, flexibility, the ability to love, humility, confidence, passion for the work, and passion for excellence. It's remarkable that what he's describing is not good food service managers, but good people. In other words, what his uh, model for organization is, is you hire really good people, and then you teach them what they need to know in order for these really good people to do the good work that's required of them in this particular context. And as I say, he has been phenomenally successful. But again, the puzzle is, how is it in the face of all this evidence that being an enlightened leader produces a productive workforce? Why is it that so few workplaces are enlightened in this way? And the answer I've come up with, as I hinted at a little while ago, is idea technology. It's time for a quick break, but when we come back, what we get so wrong about human motivation. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Let me start with an example. This is a study that was done years ago where three- and four-year-old nursery school kids were given the opportunity to draw with a special kind of uh, marker, special kind of pen. So they drew, and then the experimenters 
gave them good player awards. Gave some of them good player awards, not others. And then three weeks later, the experimenters came back and brought the pens back and put the pens on the drawing tables and simply kept track of which kids drew and which kids didn't. And what they found is that the kids who had gotten good player awards were less likely to draw than the kids who hadn't gotten good player awards. And not only that, but if they did draw, they drew less interesting, lower quality pictures. In other words, paying the kids off with a good player award made drawing less fun. Paying the kids off turned play into work, and when you turn play into work, one of the consequences is that kids don't want to do it, and the second consequence is when they do it, they do it with less engagement, less interest, and thus of lower quality. And this model of paying people for doing what you want them to do is the way the entire industrial system works. So the question is: Do these kids like drawing, or don't they like drawing? Is drawing play, or is drawing work? And the answer is: It depends. Drawing is play until you start paying kids off for doing it, and then it becomes work. And so, what in effect you're doing in this nursery school is turning an activity that is play into an activity that is work. Now, imagine taking this reward incentive structure and applying it across the board in every institution in society, in every factory, in every retail store, in every classroom, in every hospital, in every law firm. What you're doing is turning play or work done in pursuit of、uh, goals that are internal to the work into work, into work that is done for the paycheck, for the bonus. And if you look around, and everywhere what you see is people who are working in order to get a paycheck, it's not hard to see how you would come to the conclusion. As Adam Smith did, that the only reason people ever do anything is to get paid. But the thing to notice is that Smith was not describing something essential about the world. He was describing what the world looked like when work was organized in the way that he suggested work should be organized. In other words. What Smith was doing was creating a truth rather than discovering it. Smith was inventing a truth rather than discovering it. Let me say this another way: If you are working on an assembly line, doing exactly the same thing every ten seconds for eight hours a day, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, then. The only possible explanation for why you show up at work is that you're going to get paid for doing it. But that's not a reflection of your basic nature as a human being. It's a reflection of what you're like when you're given completely unrewarding work to do.
if you created workplaces that had a different structure, you would find that people, in fact, are have multiple motives for working and not just the paycheck. And so Smith, by being the father of the factory system, was creating something rather than discovering something fundamental about human nature. And there's a big difference between discovering and creating. Here's the, I think, is the heart of the difference. Scientists are in the business of discovery all the time. You discover the awesome power of nuclear energy. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a moral act or an immoral act? Well, there's a sense in which those are the wrong questions to be asking because the discovery is simply the discovery of a fact about the world. And whether we're better off for knowing that fact or not is a different question than whether the actual discovery of that fact is immoral or moral. However, when you create a nuclear power plant, you're not discovering anymore, you're inventing. And when we invent things, when we create things, then it's quite appropriate to ask, is, it, is this a good invention or a bad invention? Is this a moral invention or an immoral invention? Invention. Is this going to make people's lives better or is this going to make people's lives worse? And so if you think that what Adam Smith did was discover something about human nature, then the issue of whether he should have discovered it or whether it was a moral discovery is irrelevant. If you think, however, that by creating the factory system, Smith invented a human nature, now all of a sudden it becomes appropriate to ask whether this invention was a good one, whether this invention improved lives or uh, made lives worse, diminished lives. And so what I mean by idea technology is that just as cell phones and uh, MRIs and computers, the technology of things changes the world that people live in, ideas also change the world that people live in. If you have the idea that people only work for pay, that will lead to a restructuring of work so that the only reason people show up at work is to get paid. And you will have invented a notion about human motivation that then gets embodied in the institutions that people have to live among. Uh, and this new idea about human beings becomes a piece of technology that changes the way the world that human beings face. So to, to give you a slightly different example, if we think birth defects are acts of God, then we pray before we give birth. If we think birth defects are just acts of chance, then we grit our teeth and throw the dice, hoping for the best. If we think birth defects are the product of prenatal neglect, then we take better care of pregnant women. How we understand the causes of birth defects affects what we do about them. How we understand the motives people have for showing up at work affects what we do about 
that. And that's what I mean when I talk about idea technology. What uh, the philosopher economist Karl Marx said 200 years ago is that there are some ideas that we have about the world that are false. And he called false ideas about the world ideology. One of the false ideas he thought people had about the world was Adam Smith's idea that people just work for pay. So he regarded that as an example of a false idea or an ideology. And it led to the creation of a factory system that made that idea true. Let me just try to reiterate that and, and, uh, and make it a little bit more concrete. Suppose you're an astronomer and you are trying to capture the laws that underlie the motion of planets and stars. And so you, right, you develop a theory about planetary motion. I am reasonably confident that your theory about planetary motion will have no effect on how the planets move. The planets are completely indifferent to the way in which you understand them. However, if you develop a theory about human motion, which is to say human motivation, and you articulate that theory, it is quite possible that your theory about what moves people will in fact influence what moves people in the future. If I learn that the only reason people work is to get paid, then when I get to be old enough to be looking for a job, I will go looking for a job that pays me as much as I can possibly get because, you know, I learned in school that the only reason people work is to get paid. So this is what I mean by idea technology. It's uh, ideas about what, how people operate that may be false, but nonetheless may have a big impact on the institutions we live among and have to live within. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us in our final episode where Barry talks about how we can fix this. The Happiness Formula from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.